Welcome to this edition of the Mission Bitcoin Podcast. On today's episode, we talk with Lance Hancock at Bitcoin underscore Bible. Lance is an Anglican priest in the Boise, Idaho area. We have a fascinating discussion about the history of the Anglican Church in America, post-millennialism, and the role Bitcoin might play in a great awakening. This is a truly fascinating discussion. I hope you enjoy it. Now, a little bit about our sponsors. Jeter Melder LLP is more than a law firm. It is a legal team. Justin and Michael have over 30 years of experience working with different clients on different legal issues from different sides of the docket in areas such as business disputes, constitutional rights, employment agreements, employment discrimination, local counsel, and pay issues. Jeter Melder have advocated in federal and state courts in Arkansas, California, Illinois, New Mexico, and Texas. With a unique blend of clients from doctors, fellow attorneys, tradesmen, hourly workers, and the unemployed to small businesses and Fortune 500 companies, they all have one thing in common. They believe in Jeter Melder and Jeter Melder believes in them. Give them a call at 214-699-4758 or visit them at JeterMelder.com. That's J-E-T-E-R-M-E-L-D-E-R.com. Hey, in case you haven't heard, I've developed a study guide called Bitcoin for Churches. It's a practical study guide to understanding our corrupt financial system, how Bitcoin fixes it, and why the church should care. I will be doing a live stream with City Light Church in New York City on October 8th from 6 to 8 p.m. This is a free event. Please go to citylightnyc.com to register for this free event. I'm so excited. I hope you join us. Thank you. Hey, Lance. Uh, thanks for joining me today. It's uh, it's it's great to get to know you, and I'm, I'm really excited about uh, chatting with you about uh, Bitcoin and, and what you do. And I'll be honest with you. I, I think I shared this with you before. I mean, Having an Anglican priest in my presence is interesting. I, I don't, I uh, didn't know if I was uh, in England or, or in America. So it's kind of cool to talk to an Anglican priest. And uh, so, Lance, if you could just kind of describe, kind of introduce the folks to who you are and what you're doing, and we'll, we'll go from there. Thanks for having me on the show, Patrick. Um, yeah, so I am a bivocational Anglican priest. Um, I work in the real estate industry in the Boise, Idaho area, doing residential and commercial real estate. And I uh, also have been a priest for just over three years. Um, did not grow up in the Anglican tradition, uh, was always in a non-denominational sort of setting. Um, went to Bible college, um, actually started an extension site for my Bible college in the Boise area. I did grow up in, in, uh, in, in Idaho and ended up moving back to help start this extension site. That ended up flopping. Um, but one thing that the Lord did when he moved my wife and I back to Idaho was uh, get us connected with an Anglican parish that had recently planted around the same time that we moved to Idaho in 2014. And um, after worshiping there for about six months, the Lord seemed to be growing this desire to be a pastor, which I had had off and on uh, for the previous uh, 10 years or so. And um, it was in the Anglican tradition that uh, I began to sense this is actually the context in which this this desire to be a pastor, which had waxed or waned. This is this is the context for that that, that uh, ministry to to be carried out. So I discerned that uh, privately for about a year and then invited um, 
people from my church uh, to discern with me and the Lord continued to give the green lights. And so eventually that led to me uh, going through our ordination process and um, a bishop ordained me as a, as a deacon in 2017 and as a priest in, in uh, the spring of 2018. That's fantastic. I mean, you, you basically outlined proper prayer, uh, discernment using the body uh, and then waiting for the Lord to confirm that. That's fantastic. Lance, uh, kind of describe your personal history a little bit, you know, growing up and, you know, the, the role that the church played in kind of um, making you the man that you are today. So I grew up in a... Um I would call it a semi-Christian home. Um, I mean, I was taught the faith from uh, from my earliest days, but didn't have um, didn't have a, a father that was um, super engaged with the Lord. Actually, kind of just um, disappeared emotionally um, from from the family when I was when I was really young. I'm the youngest of four, so um, I, I'm the one that rem- remembers the least of, of how things might have been when when there was a, a greater semblance of health in my family. Um, but I, you know, I was an Awana champion, <laughs> you know, won, won the Timothy Award. Uh, awesome. For, first in my class to do it as a sixth grader, you know, and I was I was big into that. So I I had I had a knowledge of the Lord uh, every year at summer camp for nine years in a row, you know, kind of rededicated my life to Jesus around the campfire. Um, but I didn't I didn't really have someone that 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 mentored me, uh, discipled me in the faith, uh, walked with me and said, like, this is actually the life that Jesus desires to give those who trusted him until I was a sophomore in high school and through, you know, a variety of circumstances, uh, the Lord who had, who had put the fear of God in me, you know, my, my older siblings all kind of, they, they strayed pretty far um, from, from the, the Christian foundation that, that my mom in particular had tried to instill uh, in us all. And he, he never let me do that, even though I had, I had kicked against the goads a little bit. And then when I was a sophomore, he brought a, uh, an older man in my, in our church into my life, um, who just has a heart for orphans and widows. Um, and he, he took me under his wing along with some other guys that were teens and 20 somethings and uh, started mentoring me and teaching me about, um, the full life that Jesus offered. And so that, that got me oriented toward, uh, walking with Jesus and not just confessing his name. Um, so went off to Bible college, not really knowing what I wanted to do with my life. Um, but I went to a good Bible college that, that taught the word and it was an interdenominational school, Eternity Bible College in Simi Valley, California. Um, and, and in that time, I, I really just took away two core convictions uh, from that education, which was the authority of God's word and the primacy of the local church for Christian ministry. And so that that's followed me um, everywhere I've gone, um, worked at a non-denominational church in Columbus, Ohio for a few years, met my wife out there. Um, and then when we moved to Idaho, we got we got connected with this this Anglican church, um, which um, it, it is an evangelical, liturgical, um, charismatic um, local um, church. And we have found a lot of life there, um, a lot of uh, great community and relationship, actually, with the church in Rwanda. Um, for a time, uh, the diocese that, that we're a part of was actually um, under the jurisdiction of Rwandan bishops. And Fantastic. that was that was the provision of the Lord, because there was there were a lot of unfaithful bishops in the United States and the Episcopalian Church. So the uh, Anglican Church of Rwanda stepped up and said, um, you know, we experienced a physical genocide um, in the uh, in 1994. 
and we we don't want to see spiritual genocide. So mm-hmm. we are going to step in and provide support uh, for faithful Anglicans in North America. That's fantastic, Lance. I I, I want to kind of delve in on that a little bit more. If you will, for those who may not be as familiar with church history, I, let's back up to the, what the Anglican Church is or the tradition of the Anglican Church uh, at its beginning in England and then kind of move that into American Anglican Anglicanism. And uh, maybe from there we can start talking about Rwanda. So let's kind of give us a history yeah, yeah. Of, of that whole process. Sure. So the Anglican Church is actually... Um I mean, it's, gosh, it's uh, 1800 years old, at least. Um, there's, there's very good reason to believe that the gospel had made it to uh, the Isles of Britannia um, in the second century. You know, there were Roman garrisons there. And in the third century, um, there was a council in Arles, in, in, in Gaul, uh, or modern day France. And there were uh, numerous priests, bishops, and deacons from the church in England or uh, Britannia that had attended this conference. Uh, this synod uh, in Arles. So from from very, very early, there is the one holy Catholic and apostolic church um, in in um, what is now known as England. And over the centuries, uh, you had, um, you know, various expressions of that. There, you know, there's Celtic Christians, the Irish Christians, um, uh, big monastic movement. And uh, during the course of the Middle Ages, uh, the English church began to look more and more like the, the Roman church and, and eventually just kind of coming under its jurisdiction, uh, which was which was kind of a novel thing. That's not that's not what happened in the eastern part of the, the, the Roman Empire. Churches mm-hmm. maintained their jurisdictional autonomy um, in various various regions, uh, whereas in the West, you know, everyone kind of came under Rome. And and it was during the uh, during the Renaissance that the stirrings of Reformation began. Someone like Wycliffe, um, Tyndale, you know, people like that began to recognize that the the Church of Rome um, was not uh, was not in submission to the Word of God. Um, so they started translating the Word and getting it into people's hands. So there was actually you no know, the, the actual English Reformation didn't happen until the 16th century, but the the foundations for that were really being built. Um, on the word of God for a couple centuries prior to that. So um, during the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, you have you know, churches in Europe on the main continent uh, that are undergoing Reformation. But the bishops in those areas were all Roman Catholic bishops, and, and they didn't want Reformation. And so people like Luther or Calvin or Zwingli, they were essentially um, outcasts from the church, and they had to start their own churches. They, they had no other choice. Um, and so they, they, they were actually schisms rather than reformations. Um, but in England, the, the bishops in the church um, on that island actually wanted the reformation for the, for the most part. There were some that didn't. Um, and so there so were some political to, so circumstances. Lance, just, to, just to summarize, so the, the bishops on the mainland uh, didn't want anything to do with the reformation yeah. and hence the schisms in England. The bishops actually wanted the Reformation, and they tried to do it from within the church. That's right. That's right. So that's why the Anglican Church looks more Catholic than any of the other Reformation churches, uh, and that's because they didn't. They, it wasn't a, a schism in the creation of a new church. It really was a Reformation. It was a reclaiming of the authority of the local bishops in England. Um, it, a return to what they had before England had come under Rome. 
Um, and so they weren't, they weren't innovating at all. They were trying to go back to something that was original um, and, and, and restore that. So it was a restoration uh, as well as a reformation. Um, they didn't throw out the baby and the bathwater. Um, so yeah, that's why there's a lot of liturgical elements. Um, and, and they didn't, they didn't have to try to distinguish themselves uh, in, in a lot of the ways that the, the, the main, the main continent of Europe, um, where, where you had different reformations happening. They had to distinguish themselves. They also had to come up with a way, you know, one of the big theological issues was how do we defend our, our, our polity, um, our ecclesiology? You know, we, we have very clearly broken off from the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We don't have bishops in apostolic succession. And so you get the rise of, um, you know, the congregationalists, you get the rise of, um, you know, the Presbyterian polity. Um, but the Anglican Church has maintained the what's called the Episcopal polity, uh, where you have bishops um, who uh, have jurisdiction over diocese and then priests um, that are serving the bishop by serving um, particular parishes. So Rwanda fits into this. Um, fast forward, um, the Church of England, largely as a as a byproduct of the empire, the English empire, the British empire, um, you, know, you know, taking over uh a two lot of the world. Of the, yeah, two the, thirds of the known the world. Sun, yeah. yeah, the sun never setting on the British Empire. And so they were also exporting the church. Um, so that was, uh, I wouldn't call it an accident of history. Um, it was the you know, Lord's provision. It was one of the means by which he brought the church and the gospel to uh, many new lands. And one of those lands was um, to become the United States of America. And um, in the U.S., the um, the church was called the the Episcopal Church of the United States of America, and um, for the last about fifty or sixty years, um, the Episcopal Church has really uh, kind of concertedly abandoned the the Orthodox the Orthodox faith. Um, you know, you have bishops denying that the resurrection is a, a bodily thing. You know, you have you have bishops. Basically, uh, advocating for doctrine that has been explicitly denied and renounced in the in the history of the church, um, and is and is acceptable to culture, um, and and yet um, it, it, there's just it is a very clear um, hubris that you know basically we're going to go ahead and step into these uncharted territories, do these things that most of the church doesn't agree with, but we'll just give it some time, and everyone will come around and see that we were right. Well, here we are 50 years later. Yeah. Give us give us a kind of a social picture of what that looks like in the Episcopal Church um, that was kind of fomenting and, and now is kind of fully present. Yeah. Um, you know, one of one of the things was in 2004, the um, the Episcopal Church in the United States consecrated a openly gay um, bishop. Um uh, I think that was um, it, it was somewhere in, in, in New England. I forget the, the particular um, the diocese, and that was that was a symptom. Like that that accelerated a um, a reconfiguration of the Anglican Church in the United States, where you had people that had been that had been you know, calling the church to repentance, but staying in the church and trying to labor for reformation. Eventually, going okay, like we can't do this anymore, and so. Um, so there was um, Rwanda enters in and, and some other um, other uh, national churches to provide some basically foster care for for faithful Anglicans in the United States. Um, but that was one. But there were there were things before that as well. Um, 
that just that just marked hubris. One example, you know, going back to the seventies was actually the the ordination of of women to the presbyterate to be priests. And um, regardless of what someone thinks about that, um, whether or not the Bible permits women to be um, elders or not, um, the Episcopal Church acted unilaterally in ordaining women. There was not a single Anglican church, Catholic church, or Orthodox church in the world that ordained women to the presbyterate. Um, and this was something that, um, you know, basically three fourths of all the Christians in the world, you know, are, are subsumed under the Anglican, Roman Catholic, and Orthodox churches. And there wasn't a single diocese in all the world that um, authorized that practice. So this is just something that the church has had agreement on for generation upon generation for yeah. two millennia. And, and, and then in, in pride, the Episcopal church said, no, we're going to do this and everybody will catch up to us in 40 or 50 years. And, and here we are, um, you know, 40, 50 years later, and there's still disagreement about this and it's caused fracture. So even if you thought you were right, um, you know, that the acting unilaterally uh, is a breaking of communion. And, um, and then they pressed on into the exact same thing with homosexual marriage. Um, and it's just been kind of a devolution of the Episcopal church. And it really, it's a dying church. Um, the, it's interesting that the, the, the Episcopal church in the United States is full of very wealthy, influential people. Yes. Um, a lot of presidents, uh, are part of the, the Episcopal church, the national cathedral in Washington, DC is an Episcopal church. Um, but it is, um, it's it's not it's not full of fruit uh, because it's it's not walking in the ways of life. So it's it's slowly but surely um, declining in its in its influence and its power and its membership. Um, and contrast that with the Anglican Church, um, which is this you know conglomeration of continuing confessing Anglicans that uh, wanted to hold to the Word of God and found um, found you know a, uh, ecclesiastical oversight from bishops from around the world who said we we will provide spiritual authority. Um, in, in the absence of these bishops that you can't submit to anymore, um, the Anglican Church is growing, and there's a lot of people actually who are beginning to return to um, liturgical traditions, whether it's the Orthodox, the Catholic, or the Anglican Church in the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, this there's there's almost this um, this quality of of gold or silver mm-hmm. <laughs> to uh, these these ancient traditions versus the fiat. Um, quality of you know, these big seeker sensitive, you know, mm-hmm. consumeristic, like, let's just try to sell Jesus and, you know, all these gimmicks. And, and a lot of people are getting burnt out on that and they're mm-hmm. trying to find something stable. That's most of the people in my congregation. That's interesting. Um, everyone came from a different background. We only have one or two cradle Episcopalians. Um, everybody else has come into the, uh, the Anglican way um, looking for stability looking for something that's not changing every mm-hmm. year, every decade, or even every generation, mm-hmm. not reinventing itself, but just um, con- a continual um, expression of the faith that had been delivered once and for all. That's fascinating. Um, that's really fascinating. Kind of describe the, the Rwanda con- Rwandan connection again. And I was going to ask you to compare the, the growth of the Episcopal versus the Anglican church. But I think you answered that, that that's fascinating as well, but kind of describe the Rwanda connection. Yeah. So in the nineties, there's a, there's actually a great book called never silent that, uh, that kind of traces this history. It's written by Thad, Thad Barnum. 
Um, but in the 90s, there were um, some priests in the U.S. that had a relationship with priests and bishops in Rwanda. And, um, you know, all, all of the, again, you know, 2004 was this consecration of an openly, openly gay, um, bishop in the Episcopal Church. But, but that's a symptom. Um, and it was the inevitable, um, inevitable, um, result of prior postures toward the word. Um, and so there were stirrings of, uh, of a, a reorganization, if you will. Um, that preceded that. And so in the 90s, one of the churches that um, was taking an interest in um, in providing uh, spiritual foster care for the U.S. was the church in Rwanda. Um, they had just experienced a, you know, tragic, um, tragic events in 1994 in April, uh, beginning in April for 100 days, you know, um, 800,000 to a million Rwandans were killed. And you know, the sad thing is, is that the majority of Rwandans identified as Christians, um, even at that time. And so, um, the, the nation had been humbled. The church had been humbled. They were, they were finding freedom and reconciliation through the ways of Jesus, um, through forgiveness. And so, uh, there was just kind of this relationship that was, that was birthed in that, in kind of in the late nineties. Um, and then when, when, uh, the, uh, there, there was this, there was this, uh, this entity called the America, uh, Anglican Mission in America, um, where you had Rwanda bishops, um, and some, you know, a bishop from Singapore, a bishop from the Southern Cone, uh, South Africa, um, that basically just said, we we will provide shelter for you. Um, because again, as an Anglican, as an Anglican follower of Jesus, um, you, you don't just go off and do your own thing. There's no, you can't really be a renegade. Um, yeah. Part, part of being an Anglican is that you have a bishop. Yes. Um, the, the problem was that you have bishops that deny the resurrection and that are openly teaching, you know, heresies. And in so here, uh, here in America, in America. Yeah. yeah. And, and so you have these other bishops that said, we, we will provide that shelter for you and, and, and bless, bless your ministry. Um, and you can be accountable to us. And they basically fostered, um, various parishes, um, and priests in the U S and in Canada for about a decade and a half um, until the uh, the Anglican Church of North America was formed in 2009 and that that is a that is a new province in the global communion of Anglicans so there's depending on how you count it something like 38 or 39 um, provinces and in Anglican polity each one of those provinces is um, is uh, autonomous you know self-governing and the only way that you can have um, discipline among the provinces is by 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 mutual consent, and this is ultimately where where every you know polity ends up. You know, you have people that that are at the highest positions of authority, and they have to be a mutually agree to submit to one another. And the the Episcopal Church in the U.S. has not submitted to um, to the the warnings and the admonitions of the other provinces, and um, and so you have this, uh, unfortunately, it, it is a competing jurisdiction um, in the ACNA, um, and it continues to grow. There's a lot of churches being planted in the ACNA, um, whereas the Episcopal Church, man, I've never, I've never, ever heard of a church plant uh, in the Episcopal Church. Maybe it's happening, but, um, but I, don't, I don't ever see that or hear anything about that. Well, uh, talk about this relationship with Rwanda again. Um, you mentioned that. 
Um, you guys have ongoing relationships with them. Do you send over missions teams? Kind of describe what's going on in Rwanda now during COVID and, mm. you know, how that's affecting, you know, ministry there and with you. And how's, how is that framed? Uh, what you think about the church's mission should be at this time? Yeah. So with Rwanda, you know, this is not a patriarchal relationship at all where, where we send missions teams as traditionally understood. Um, when we send teams over to Rwanda, it's, it's really, um, it's really just a foster relationship. And, um, we don't go with an agenda to build things. Um, you know, it, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, our, our rector, our senior pastor or I, you know, if we're over there, we will provide some teaching and instruction, um, to, to other pastors, um, and share, you know, share, share some of the gifts that we've received from the Lord. But we go there for mutual exchange of gifts, um, in the context of relationship. And we are connected with a couple of parishes in particular, um, and a couple of priests, um, who, who lead those parishes. One of them, uh, his name is Cedric Kanana. Um, and this is, this is a man who was, um, <laughs> you know, he, he was uh, a Muslim uh, sheikh and he was going to, or he was a Muslim imam and he was, he was set to be the sheikh in his region, which is like the equivalent of a bishop. Um, and he died and the Lord raised him from the dead 12 hours later and has just set him, set him on fire. Um, and he's an incredibly gifted evangelist. Um, and so, you know, when we go, um, <laughs> we're going to be ministered to. Yeah. And, you, and say we that, bring, you, and we, you say that nonchalantly that he died and raised again in 12 hours. I mean, was that part of his conversion or what? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, the story is incredible. And he actually tells his story um, in a book called Dying in Islam, Rising um, in Christ, Dying in mm. Islam, Rising in Christ. Um, it just, it was, um, it was just picked up by another publisher. Um, but it was actually a publishing ministry of our, of our church that, that published the first, the first printing. And, uh, I'm, I'm blanking on who picked up the, the second printing. Uh, but it was, uh, it was written by Cedric himself along with, uh, our rector, um, Ben Fisher, Ben Fisher. So, um, incredible story would highly recommend it. It's, it's a, it's not not just an amazing story, but it's also very well written, and you know, it's one of those things where you pick it up and it's it's very difficult to put down, and it maybe takes three and a half four hours to read. Mm. Um, so 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 we have this relationship, and and we go there, and then we try to to help bring Rwandans here. We've had uh, foreign exchange students, um, we've had bishops and priests um, that have visited us, and uh, COVID kind of threw up our rhythm of visitation because we were kind of alternating every other year. Either we would Rwandans here, um, and there's uh, the the government in Rwanda is is, is kind of interesting. It's it's really a like a semi police state. You know, if you're in the capital city, well before COVID, you know that you'll you'll see military police stationed um, throughout the city on different you know corners of um, different blocks and whatnot. Um, so a, a borderline authoritarian, and and they often they often implement very, very weird and unexpected policies around zoning and, and meeting certain codes that you know, shut down a bunch of churches and things like that. And, uh, over the course of, of COVID-19, some very restrictive measures. Um, and one of the issues with this is, you know, they've, they've really damaged the, um, the economy in Rwanda. So many of the, the, the people um, live off of subsistence farming and um, but, but that's supplemented through uh, through trade, 
and imports. And a lot of that was, um, was just shut off that valve of, of resources. And so, um, we were able to get a large gift to Rwanda before there was a huge inflation in prices. Uh, and, um, and, and we, we've been involved in, you know, various initiatives to try to bring about some more sustained economic sustainability, um, partnering with the mother's union, um, partnering with, um, the, the Biumba diocese to, you know, to grow crops. And, 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 uh, there's, there's a place, I think, for Bitcoin in this as well where um where you know much of much of the developing world um has been under continual colonization um over the last 40 50, 40 or 50 years but it's a monetary colonization yep um if you've ever read alex gladstein from the human rights um, foundation he's, mm-hmm. he writes about this and um and there's there's a lot of unfairness of economic monetary injustice in the world. Um, so I think that Bitcoin will, will definitely play a, a part in our relationship and even just getting money over to Rwanda in a quick way. You know, when we send money, uh, we send it through Western Union. Yeah. And usually we're sending enough money where the fee actually isn't that substantial. Um, it, you know, if it's, if it's a small amount of money, you might see 50% of it, you know, taken up um, by the middlemen. But if you're sending a larger quantity, $1,500, $2,500, you know, it might, it might only be 30 or $50 um, fee. Uh, but then you're waiting several days and it's kind of a laborious process. And with Bitcoin and Lightning Network, you know, we can send it instantaneously with zero fees, um, and, and no middlemen. And, um, yeah, the, the, there's, there's a lot of conversations yet, yet to be had. Um, well, and, but, Lance, but they, let's will, talk, they will be had. Okay. Well, let's talk about that. I mean, what, uh, kind of describe your journey into Bitcoin. It sounds like it's been pretty recent. So kind of describe your journey into Bitcoin. Potentially, you know, who else within the body uh, in your body is is interested in Bitcoin and, you know, where you see it going for you. And then maybe we could talk about, you know, where you see it going, um, you know, in, in a missions context or, you know, in a relational context in Rwanda. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, it, I started the deep dive probably in February of this year. So I guess only half a year. Um, I, I had maybe heard about Bitcoin back in 2014. I feel like I well, can remember. What, why'd you do the deep? I mean, what, what got you in? Well, it was, um, it was actually reading George Gilder's book, um, Life After Google, um, in the wake of COVID-19 and, and George Floyd, um, and the election, um, all three of those. Uh, events in the last year got me, got me considering the, um, the, the power and influence of big tech, uh, gatekeepers to the internet, gatekeepers to information, um, payment processors like Visa being, uh, willing to, um, stop payments to certain entities, um, if those entities were promoting content that Visa didn't agree with, um, this this was concerning to me, just the immense centralization and recognizing that, uh, you know, every time there's a crisis, uh, to quote Rahm Emanuel, um, you know, don't let any crisis go wasted. Uh, Rahm Emanuel being the former chief of staff for President Obama. And so feeling feeling that, uh, feeling the politi- politi- politicization of, um, of these events, um, whether it was COVID or race relations and things of that nature um, and, and recognizing that big tech has a uh, unwieldy influence. Uh, so 
I read Life After Google, and uh, in that book, George Gilder introduced me to the idea of the blockchain. Um, and and I, I guess I had heard of it before, but but I had no understanding of it. And it was this idea of decentralized and distributed uh, ledger. Uh, that was the what George Gilder argues. This is the inevitable future. Uh, people are finally waking up to the the realization that they are the product for all these big tech companies. You know, have all these free services, and they are selling their privacy, and they have become dependent upon um, dependent on a very few powerful um, institutions um, led by people that maybe they don't want to have that much control over their information. So. That got me interested in Bitcoin, uh, which Gilder talks about in the book. Um, and I had a friend at, around the same time who who um, sent me the um, the Sailor series with Robert Breedlove, um, and also uh, turned me on to the book "Thank God for Bitcoin." So I read those and was uh, immediately just like starting to connect the dots. Um, and then that sent me into a big deep dive. I probably spent. I want to be conservative here. At least 200 hours um, in the last six months, reading and listening um, books, articles, essays, podcasts. Um, I've I've been having many conversations with uh, people, uh, whether at the office, um, my real estate office, or um, in the church, or just friends. Um, it's it's very interesting, you know the the way that. The questions that Bitcoin makes you um, makes you ask, and the answers that um, that you find, you know, Bitcoin it, it it's this revolution because in a world of monetary deceit, Bitcoin is monetary truth. There will only ever be twenty one million. Um, the supply schedule for the release of of new coins is every ten minutes for the next one hundred twenty years. Um, you can count on it. Verify every transaction. Um, you know that because of proof of work, these coins aren't being created at the thin air, um, ex nihilo, mm-hmm. and uh, instead, just you know, in in accordance with the first law of thermodynamics, energy is not created; it's just transferred. But but it, but it is always conserved. Um, so so I began to see that in you know this this reference, like having monetary truth. Is, is a new reference point um, through which to view all sorts of things around money. And, and money is, you know, it's a technology that allows us to, um, to move our, our time and our energy across, across space. And, um, and it really is at the heart of any scalable economy. You know, if we didn't have money, we would all be bartering. And Lance, you can let only me, barter. Let me ask you yeah. something. That, that, that last statement that you mentioned that Bitcoin is this frame of reference that we kind of look at everything else around it. As believers, you know, we believe in the ultimate truth, but yeah. we got we got captured by this fiat system. And and I don't know why, but other than the fact that there was nothing else available to us. But how, why does Bitcoin allow us to do this? And what what? Why? Why did Christians get captured in this fiat system that just essentially is a lie? That is a great question. Um, I think I think it's not an accident that fiat fiat really became the dominant money of the world simultaneous with with relativism. 
but mm-hmm. postmodern yeah. postmodern yeah. philosophy. Yeah. Um, so you have you have the Christian you have the Christian tradition. Um, this is a good this is a good moment to to mention that I'm a that I'm a post millennialist, and um, what what that essentially means is that um, I believe that not only is Jesus reigning right now at the right hand of God, but that over the course of history, um, he is he is bringing every part of the cosmos under his authority, um, bringing it into submission to him. And we can dive into that a little bit later. Yeah, um, you know, the biblical foundations of that. But what that what that means is that I'm optimistic um, about history, um, and I see over the generations since Jesus' ascension the slow but steady permeation of the knowledge of God through the gospel of Jesus into the world. Um, you know, Jesus tells his parables of what his kingdom is like, and he he says like it's a little bit of leaven that leavens the whole lump. Um, or it's like this small seed that becomes the largest tree in the garden or more, or, or more explicitly in Daniel two, there's this vision that Nebuchadnezzar has of the empires of the earth represented in the statue. And there's this small stone uncut by human hands that smashes that statue. And then it grows into a mountain that fills the whole earth. And, um, and then Jesus said, you know, when Peter confessed him as the Christ, the son of God, he said, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And I think that the church in recent generations has has taken Jesus's words in uh, in Matthew 16. On this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And they've understood that to mean that, you know, we're going to huddle together um, and, and be um, this you know, unstoppable or un- unbreakable entity in the world. Um, and we're going to experience all sorts of assaults, but Jesus is going to preserve us and deliver us. And, and we're never going to, we're never going to lose basically. <laughs> but, but that understanding understands um, gates to be an offensive device as if gates could assault, but, but gates are defensive. And when Jesus says he's going to build his church in the gates of Hades, that is the gates of death won't overcome it. The image is actually of Jesus sending his church into the world to assault the ways of death, the ways that lead to death, to bring every thought captive to the lordship of Jesus, uh, to bring about the obedience of faith among all the nations, like Paul says in Romans 1. And so there's this, um, in post-millennialism, actually, there's a, um, there's a time preference shift um, that that is the opposite um, sort of type reference as uh, something like a premillennialism, particularly dispensationalism, which I think America in particular um, has uh, has the vestiges of. It's it's in everybody's. It seems to be in everybody's psyche that you know, we're near the end of the world. Yeah, let's discuss that because you know I was mentioning before the conversation. I grew up in that that era, and you know I I haven't really studied it in years because it was just. In the end, I concluded it didn't matter. You know, I need to live for Jesus and it, it just didn't really matter. Um, but uh, so kind of describe that. And um, I, I'm curious on your take on history as well. And I agree with you. It was relativism that what set the fertile ground for the fiat monetary system in Keynesian economics. And actually wrote about this in, in one of my essays called The Escape from Reason. Uh, it's It's clear if you look at 
the age of reason in the enlightenment that uh, this, this in Darwinism, it, it paved the way for this. There's no question in my mind about that, but I'm not so optimistic about the future. Um, I, I'm not sure that on the one hand, I look at Bitcoin as, as you do as this divine gift, but and I don't think that the Lord would uh, provide for this gift. And I, I had Jimmy Song on the the podcast last week, and we'll be dropping that soon. But I kind of asked him, you know, why would the Lord provide this gift of, of Bitcoin and why now? Why not before? So from that perspective, I look at Bitcoin as being optimistic to the future. But um, the, looking at where we are with the world right now, it seems like we're just going down the tubes. So, yeah. So just kind of describe your, your um, eschatology and, and kind of compare it to, you know, where America's been and, and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to. So I, I had a very, very similar, um, I, I think it sounds like a very similar understanding of, um, of the end times um, as you, as you described pretty pessimistic. I was, I, you know, I started off, um, you know, kind of raised and, cultivated in a, a premillennial um, mindset. Um, and then I moved into this amillennial so, mindset. So Lance, kind of Lance, de- this let's, let's define those terms so everybody define that. Yeah, so, pre- yeah. so, so <laughs> the millennial terminology comes from Revelation 20, verse 6, and it's really it's the only place um, in Scripture that refers to this millennium. And so there's there's three major traditions. One is the premillennial um, interpretation, which is that um, Jesus is going to come at some point in history and establish a millennial kingdom, a thousand year reign, and it's a literal one thousand years. And then there's an amillennial tradition um, that understands that we are in the millennium, um, and it's um, it's it's an ongoing reign of Jesus. Um, but during the millennium, um, it, there's kind of this pessimism. Um, at the same time that Jesus is reigning, the kingdom of darkness is 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 reigning alongside of it. Um, that's 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 a simplified um, understanding. And then postmillennialism is really just amillennialism, but it's an optimistic um, outlook. It's it's that Jesus is currently reigning. He has ascended to the right hand of the Father. Um, and that over the course of history, uh, he is he is bringing the nations into obedience to him. So, it, you know, if I could, I, I would I would point to a few to a few scriptures and say, let's let's understand our eschatology from the word. Uh, and, and what we need to avoid is this um, this uh, tendency to to interpret the scriptures based off of headlines. Uh, and this is what often happens when I talk to people about the postmillennial vision of the Bible um, is that they say, well, I just don't see it. And I say, well, sure, you, you don't see it right now in our culture because we've been in rebellion against God for several generations and he's bringing judgments. But if you step back and you look at 500 year increments since the ascension of Jesus and you say, has Jesus's death in history, resurrection in history, ascension in history, had any bearing on the course of history? And the answer is, of course, yeah. Like the greatest, the greatest developments um, in, in technology, um, in, um, in, in uh, you know, culture-wide ethics, like they, they find their roots in the Christian worldview as it slowly permeated, particularly the West. Um, in God's providence, that's the route that it has taken so far as it went westward. Um, it went eastward as well, but it was stopped. Um, for a season. So it went westward. You had Christendom. 
And, you know, and then you have a bunch of nations in the West that have abandoned faith in God, um, you know, escape from reason. You know, they've abandoned the foundation and they have tried to live off of the fruit for so long. Um, but they're realizing that there's this rotten branch now because you, you rejected Christ who made sense of all of these things. So you reject Christ and what you're left with is chaos. Um, you're left with relativism. And in the, the, the Western nation states are really beginning to experience this. And, you know, I think especially some, like a secular state like Australia, you know, Australia, you know, if you look at it a decade ago, even a couple of years ago, you'd say it's this bastion of, of, of liberty and, um, and reason. And, you know, there's, there's human flourishing there, but all that was borrowed capital. All that was borrowed um, from the Christian tradition. Um, but if you look at what's happening in Australia right now, it's a total police state. Um, and, and people, people don't know that, that Jesus is Lord, not the government. Um, and so people are submitting to, to tyranny right now because the government is going to rise into that, that, that vacuum and, and fulfill the place that, that only Christ should fill. So going back to post-millennialism, here are some of the scriptures that are especially formative for me. And, and I would submit that this is not cherry picking, but this is actually the way that the apostles apply the, the, the kingdom prophecies. And they, they apply them in a way that says these things are being realized now in, in redemptive history. So one would be Psalm 110. This is the most quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament, Jesus and the apostles. And it's sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. When did Jesus sit at God's right hand? It's when he ascended into heaven. So what is he, what is happening over the course of history as Jesus is at the right hand of God before he comes? God is making Jesus' enemies a footstool for his feet. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples um, um, plot in vain against the Lord and against his anointed? So you have the nations of the earth um, you know, seeking autonomy. Uh, seeking to be self-sovereign uh, and to determine the ways of good and evil. And they they plot against God and they rebel against him. And it says the Lord sits in the heavens and he laughs, and mocks them to scorn. And he says, you are my son to the Messiah. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth, your possession. And you will rule them with an iron rod, which which is his word. Um, and this is, this is revealed later that the rod is the word of God. So, uh, again, a Old Testament psalm that is quoted frequently in the New Testament in the way that the apostles appropriate both of those psalms is to say that these things are being fulfilled now. Jesus deserves the nations. They are his inheritance. Satan offered them to him during the temptations mm-hmm. in the wilderness. Mm-hmm. But Jesus and, and Jesus wanted them. They are his reward. But they're the reward for his obedience to the ways of the Father. Um, and so Paul understands his vocation as an apostle, according to Romans 1, it's to bring about the obedience of faith in all of the nations. That's what he wants, the obedience of faith. When Jesus, um, after his resurrection and before his ascension, he, you know, he gives this charge that we know is the Great Commission. He says, go into all the nations. Well, first of all, all authority in heaven and earth is mine. So who's ruling? Who has authority? Not Satan, not the principalities, the powers of, of darkness, but Jesus has actually been given all the authority and power. Um, and he says, so go into the, the nations, um, go into the world and make disciples of the nations, uh, baptizing them 
and teaching them to obey every commandment of mine. And now when we read that as evangelicals, we typically think, okay, so he wants us to go and make disciples of a bunch of individuals from every nation. That's not what he says. He says, make disciples of the nations. Now, the way you do that is through discipling individuals. But when you begin to disciple enough individuals, eventually that changes society. It changes the way that people relate to one another. It changes the laws that are enacted. Um, so, Lance, where where would you put us now, though, in this in this picture of, you know, for the past 20 years in the evangelical churches, 25 years in evangel- evangelical churches, there's been a push in missions and missiology to, you know, uh, bring all people groups to um, to salvation. So uh, was is was that a wrong calling? Was that a wrong mission for the church? I don't think it was a wrong mission, but I think, again, this is a uh, it's almost like a fiat mindset. Um, so this idea of we need to disciple people so that they can get out of the earth, get away from the world. Um, and then Jesus is going to come and he's going to destroy everything that's in rebellion against him. And he's going to bring in a new heavens, a new earth. Um, and I can understand where people uh, arrive at that conclusion. But the post-millennial mindset is actually um, that, yes, Jesus is going to renew the earth, but he does it by bringing new creation into the old creation. So Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is mm-hmm. a new creation. But um, there will come there will come a time, uh, I guess it's in Timothy or, or Peter, I can't remember, but I mean, that the, the earth will be destroyed by fire. So where, where does that play into the, the, so, yeah. So you are thinking of second Peter, um, chapter three. And, um, so this is, this is one of the, um, this is one of the misunderstandings, um, in, in my view, um, that a lot of people come to the scriptures with. And it's a, it's a, um, it's a failure to understand the, the significance of AD 70 in the New Testament. So I would say that all of the New Testament was written prior to AD 70. And the, the significant event that happened in 70 was the destruction of Jerusalem mm-hmm. uh, by, um, by, the Roman, by the Roman legions. And all of the um, apocalyptic language that you find, for example, in Second, Second Peter chapter 3, all of that is, 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 appro- is, is appropriated from the Old Testament, from Ezekiel and the like. And if you go and you look at what did these things mean when Ezekiel or Isaiah or Jeremiah prophesied, they're using this language about the stars falling from heaven and you know, the earth being burned up. But the actual fulfillment, for example, is the destruction of Jerusalem um, in 586 BC, or it's the destruction of Babylon, a generation uh, and a half later. Um, so these are cosmic these are cosmic images. This is the way apocalyptic um, literature works. It uses cosmic language, cosmic images um, to, um, to bring in a hyper focus what is happening in the spiritual realms behind earthly events. And so, I, 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 I'd agree with that. But if you if you think about Revelation written by John, I mean, most most mm-hmm. would date that in the 90s when he wrote that. Yeah, most do. And, and, and they do that largely. Um, on the, the the extra biblical witness of Irenaeus, who was a church father um, in the second century, but if you if you just take Revelation on its own terms and you date it internally based off of the evidence that it gives for itself, nobody would ever come to a, the conclusion that it was written after AD seventy. Uh, just a, just a couple of um, uh, obvious um, a- examples of this evidence is you know in the in the very opening verse. Um, 
John says, um, it was, it's Jesus. It's the revelation, um, of, of God given through Jesus, through the, through the angel to the apostle John to give to the churches of the things that will soon take place of the things that will soon take place. Blessed are those who hear and who keep these things, who keep this prophecy. So whatever. And then, and then going to the, the very last chapter of the book, behold, I am coming soon, says Jesus. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. So in the, in the very opening verse, and then the second to last verse, the bookends of Revelation, this, this apocalypse, um, it's revealing something. So a lot, a lot of people, um, they, they go to Revelation and nothing gets revealed to them. They're just confused, right? But literally the name of the, <laughs> the book is Revelation. It's supposed to reveal something. And it was written to churches in the first century in Asia Minor, and it was supposed to reveal something that was to encourage them. And it was a word that they could keep and it meant something for them. Um, and, and when we interpret revelation in a way that doesn't make any sense to the original audience and is dealing with things that are, you know, thousands of years removed from them or interpret it where we're trying to line it up with current events. I think that, I think that we're not, we're not being faithful to, um, to the text. Um, there's, there is a way to understand revelation, um, that is, that is dealing with, um, the situation that the church found itself in, in the late sixties AD, um, preceding the destruction of Jerusalem. And, um, and that's, so this is called, this is called partial preterism. It's a hermeneutic, a way of understanding the text. And, and I was very suspicious of partial preterism and postmillennialism for a lot of years, all through Bible college, a few years afterwards. Um, and then I, and then I finally just tried on the lenses. I said, I, I'm going to actually give it a fair chance. I had a conversation with a friend and it got me intrigued. And I had answers for a bunch of wrinkles in the New Testament with my eschatology. I had, I, you know, sufficient answers. Uh, but when I tried on the, the, the hermeneutical lenses of partial preterism, which just means fulfillment, um, and read Matthew 20, uh, 25 and, um, Thessalonians and Peter and Revelation, and so much of what what Paul is indicating in his letters, I, I began to realize like this makes better sense if he's referring to eighty seventy than if he's speaking about the final return of Jesus. Um, so we, I mean, we don't have enough time to to, to dive into um, the, the the textual arguments for for partial preterism, um, but that is a significant piece of that. That what a lot of people think. Paul or the apostles are referring to, or even Jesus is referring to as the end of the age or the end of time um, is actually about the end of the current age, which was the age of the old covenant. And that age actually continued on after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended. This is what the, the author of the Hebrew, the, the letter to the Hebrews said, he said, these things are becoming obsolete and they're ready to pass away. And he's talking about the old Testament system. Um, so there was this period of overlap where you had the new covenant community, but you still had the vestiges of the old and the centralization of that power in Jerusalem. So when, when Jesus judges Jerusalem in AD 70, it's his vindication. Um, and this is what he said. This is what he told um, the high priest on the night of his betrayal. He said, um, you know, from now on, you will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven. And, and that was blasphemy. And, and that's really what's you know, sealed the deal. And what he was referring to directly was Daniel 7. And in Daniel 7, the Son of Man represents the saints of the Most High. This is the interpretation given by the angel in Daniel 7. 
And the coming of the Son of Man is not a descent to the earth. It's actually an ascent to the ancient of days to receive the kingdom and dominion. And what happens before the ascent, before the coming of the Son of Man, is that you had these beasts. And the, 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 the most terrible beast trampled the Son of Man. And, and, and so when Jesus is, you know, kneeling before the high priest, he says, from now on, you see the son of man. The reason this is blasphemy is because he's saying, you high priest, you are the beast. And this whole system of Israel's worship around the, you know, all the corruption around the temple worship, this is the beast and God is going to judge it. And what you are going to see is the ascension of, of myself, the son of man, um, into heaven. Um, and then when he prophesies about this um, to the disciples, when they ask about the temple and how beautiful it is, and he says, it's all going to be destroyed. Remember, he says, all of these things will happen before this generation passes away. <laughs> People don't know what to do with that a lot of times. Um, and it's because they, they think that he's talking about the end of the world. But if we understand that he's actually talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, then we realize this is his vindication as the son of man. And, and he was actually correct in his prophecy. And he was vindicated in his prophecy. And that's how we know what a prophet is, according to Deuteronomy. If they prophesy something and it doesn't come to pass, you don't need to trust them. So Jesus made these very public prophecies um, during his ministry about the destruction of Jerusalem. And they came to pass. But most New Testament, um, most of the way that people interpret the New Testament, I find, is that they don't really give any significance to the fact that Jesus was correct um, in this prophecy, in the centrality of AD 70. And if I can just make one more connection, um, I would say this. It's, I don't think it's a coincidence that Jesus, Jesus's judgment, his coming in judgment, um, in AD 70 was 40 years after his ascension. 40 years, you know, represents the, the, the wilderness period. Mm -hmm, sure. And his church was in the wilderness for those 40 years. The primary persecutors of Jesus's church were not the Romans, it was the Jews. And so um, what I see in Revelation um, is, is you have, you know, you have this harlot, Babylon, which is the Jerusalem below. And then you have the Jerusalem above who's descending to earth. And according to Paul in Galatians chapter four, the Jerusalem above is the church and the church is descending from heaven. God is going to judge Babylon, um, this harlot, um, and he's marrying the church and he's establishing the church. Um, and then, the, you know, there's there's the river of life and the trees that bring about the healing of the nations, which is plugging into Ezekiel 40 to 48, which talks about this river that comes out of the temple and that brings healing to the to the world. Well, Jesus said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and out of his heart will flow streams of living water. And he says, the scriptures say that. And there's actually no verse in the Old Testament that says that unless he's referring to Ezekiel 48 and, or 40 to 48 and kind of paraphrasing. And so I think that God is, has established his church as new creation in the midst of old creation. And that as we walk with him in faithfulness, generation upon generation, again, time preference, we're not building for the here and now. We're building for 10,000 years of faithfulness, 10,000 generations of faithfulness. And we're expecting that Jesus is going to bring about the obedience of the nations over time. And it's not going to happen through coercion. It's not going to happen through politics. It's not going to happen through violence. It's going to happen through the faithful preaching of the word, um, through the faithful raising of our children to, in, the, in the instruction and, and, and knowledge of the Lord Jesus. Um, it's going to happen through the church being the church over time. And again, in the Western, in Western civilization, 
you see all of that crumbling right now. But if you look to the global south, that's where the energy is. Yeah. And, um, yeah. and again, the gates of Hades will not overcome. And who's to say, this is, I'll, I'll, I'll stop after this, but who's to say that the gospel doesn't come back around to the West and reinvigorate and the ancient ruins are rebuilt. This is what happens in my life as an individual Christian. I have seasons of flourishing and I have seasons of falling and stumbling and disobedience, but God comes back around. Amen. Yeah. I die and he resurrects me. I die and he resurrects me. Western civilization is dying right now. Yeah. But I am confident. I'm confident that Jesus is going to resurrect. Lance, uh, I think you're ready for your sermon on Sunday. That was, that was well done. I, it's interesting. I've, I've actually had a similar thought about uh, the South, you know, looking at what's going on in El Salvador, looking at um, the disprivileged that potentially have access to Bitcoin and throwing off the shackles of fiat colonialism. Uh, I, I've had the exact same thoughts that that's interesting mm-hmm. that you, that you brought that up. So with that, um, where, how does Bitcoin fit into all this or does it? Yeah, it does. Um, in a, in a and, few and, ways. And, uh, and Lance, let me ask you this. So as you ask, as you answer that question, um, do you think that Bitcoin is a gift from God? And if you think that, why? And then kind of expound upon, you know, the role that you think Bitcoin's going to play in the in the church moving forward. Yeah, undoubtedly, I believe it's a gift from God. And, and why? Why? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I think that anytime, anytime God judges evil, corrupt, immoral systems, it's a gift to the world. Over history, as Jesus reigns and as he brings the nations into obedience slowly, again, this is a very slow and imperceptible thing, just like he said it would be in all of his parables about the kingdom. But over history, he eventually calls time on evil empires. Um, and and we, we can see that across the last 2000 years. And we can we can understand the putting down of empires um, in light of the way that he's revealed himself, especially in the Old Testament. Um, he gives us, you know, the things that were written beforehand are for our instruction today. And, and as a, especially as a post-millennialist, believing that Jesus is ruling over the affairs of man and he, and he, you know, he, he shapes the king's hearts, um, in his hands. Um, he's, history is moving somewhere. Yeah, there are absolutely. no accidents. Yeah, there is nothing that is out of his, out of his plan, out of his sovereign good plan for the world. Um, he loves creation. He died in this creation for this creation. He's going to redeem this creation. That's right. And, um, and so he's, uh, you know, we've, we've been on this, we've been on this, uh, enlightenment track for a few hundred years. And, you know, people beginning to deny God and worship created things instead, ultimately themselves. And he's been giving us over to the judgments of that. Um, one, one of the reasons we see the, the pervasive um, growth in sexual confusion in the United States is because Jesus is judging us. Right. Romans one says this is the judgment. That's right. Um, you know, a lot of people are freaking out and saying, oh, we're going to be under so much judgment because of all the homosexuality. But this actually is the judgment itself. This is a fruitless way of, of living um, and it's harmful um, and it's destructive in the Lord. You know, according to Deuteronomy, 
he 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 sends confusion and madness and blindness to a nation that rebels against him. Lance, and we I have just, had. I, I've got it. I mean, I can't believe you're saying this. I was listening to a sermon from John MacArthur this morning, and he was saying the exact same thing. He even used Roman one Romans one to expound upon that. So that's that's uh, amazing that you you're you're saying the same thing. Yeah, you know, if we have if we have eyes to see, um, you know, you you read you read the word to to understand what God's voice sounds like and to understand the types of things God does. And then in everyday life, you look around and you understand things from that frame of reference, right? In the same way that Bitcoin provides a frame of reference for economics um, and, and, and a bunch of second and third order effects outside of that that are connected to that. Um, the word of God is eternal truth that provides a frame of reference for, for everything. Mm-hmm. And we need to walk in humility. You know, we can't always make one-to-one, uh, you know, correlations and say, oh, this event means that God is doing this. Um, but I think, I think it's very safe to say, you know, looking back at the heritage that we have, um, in the West, having this, this Judeo Christian foundation, um, in the, the emergence of, um, a, a thoroughly Christian worldview and all the good that that's done to the world and then abandoning Christ and trying to continue on without him, the chaos that that's leading to, um, that is the natural consequence. It is the wrath of God that he's giving us up to, um, to, to what we've asked for. We've rejected him. We've asked for ourselves. And so he's giving us ourselves and all of our brokenness and all of our corruption. And that is personified in the state, which is just a bunch yeah. of people. Yeah. That's all it is. It's, uh, it's, it's people that are centralized and, 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 and are living that out. So, um, let's see. Remind, remind me of the original question. Um, if how you can you, remember. No, how, how you see Bitcoin kind of, you know, falling in line with, you know, where the church is headed or where history is headed. How do you see? Right. Thank you. Yeah. That's right. So I think that this decade uh, is going to be tremendously uh, wild. Um, we are we're in our you know basically the the fourth or fifth decade into the digital revolution um now maybe the third or the fourth uh, depends on how you how you want to um time that but just like just like there were you know major revolutions you know when we moved from the hunter gatherer into the agrarian age and then the agrarian into the industrial age and the way that we organized ourselves politically um in groups um was looked a certain way um, in those those particular ages. Now we're moving into this information age, this digital age, and um, and the change that it's bringing about is rapid. Uh, and it's so much faster than the traditional power systems um, and, and um, power structures um, of the industrial age can keep up with. Have you so read, we're experiencing... Have you, Lance, have you read Jeff Booth's book? The price of yeah, cars. absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so you know, and, and I've lived through this. I was born in '91, and just to look at each decade, where we began, and then where we were at the end of the decade in terms of the 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 permeation of technology and the things that were made possible, it's mind blowing. Each decade, and it's not linear; it's entirely exponential. So, so we're hitting we're hitting a very very exponential decade in the in the 2020s and you have this great push for centralization um in across the world and 
and God does not, um, God, I don't think God approves of that. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't yeah. think he's going to allow it to, to get to the point where those who are in power, you know, want to come in and quote unquote, save the day by offering security and, and, and stability. If everyone will just give up these freedoms or these privacies um, in order to have um, stability as, as a, as a, as a one world, if you will. I think that there's this, there's a positioning um, of that, you know, you can call it monetary reset, the great reset. These are all just, if you just listen to the way, you know, people in power are, are talking, these are things that they're saying, whether they're bankers, central bankers, politicians. Um, so there's this big push. Um, and, and it reminds me of the, the plains of Shinar um, and the tower of Babel. We want to, we want to socially engineer the world to bring about paradise. And there are people centralizers, centralizers think that they can do that. They think it's possible mm-hmm. if you can just arrange the environment so and you know, such and such, then people will fall into line and will have achieved human perfection. It's this, it's this unconstrained vision, to borrow a, a term from Thomas Sowell, an unconstrained vision of what humans are, that humans can be perfected. And then you have biblical anthropology, <laughs> which is that humans are very constrained. Yeah. We have sin. Um, until the resurrection uh, in, in, in new bodies, like we are always going to have corruption in us. And so uh, in a constrained vision of the world, you don't want centralization because you're decentralizing people under the authority and rule of those who are also broken. You want decentralization. Uh, you want distribution. And um, when the Lord came on in, in, in judgments um, in, in Genesis um, 11, he, he basically looked at the hubris of man, he laughed at it, and he just dispersed them by confusing them. Yeah. Um, he thwarts, he thwarts it when, when, when kings and princes set themselves against him. He might allow it for a time, but eventually he calls time and he, and he thwarts them. Um, and I think that that is probably what we see in this decade. And I think Bitcoin is this seemingly innocuous technology that for whatever reason um, was allowed to grow until it gained the network effect where it cannot be stopped now. Um, and it is going to be um, the maybe the motor um, that powers this shift from centralization into decentralization and individual sovereignty, where nation states break down because they cannot keep up with the power of technology and the freedom that it gives people um, as people opt into, um, as, as they opt out of fiat and as they opt out of you know, centralization in web services, um, you know, they start hosting their own, mm-hmm. their own servers, uh, their own, um, their own software and uh, communications networks. Like, like this, this is the type of thing where like, once the idea has come, if the time is right, it's unstoppable. So and I, I mean, actually see. Lance, so, I mean, you're about to say what you see. So do you see a role? And I asked Jimmy Song the same question. Do you see a role in the rise of federalism or nation states rather than states or, or big, big states? I mean, do you think that we could actually get to smaller decentralized states, whether in the United States, we become more of a federalist uh, state, state run? And how would that look in, in Western Europe? I mean, I, I don't see unless they dissolve the EU, I don't, I don't see how that, how that would happen. Yeah. Um, I, I definitely see an erosion of, um, 
of something like the EU and the bloated uh, bureaucratic administrative state in the US. And largely, I think that erosion happens because the only thing that sustains it, um, that props it up is the printing of money. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. and once that, once that, you know, they can print all the money they want, but when that money isn't worth anything because people don't want it, then, then it's necessarily going to erode. And yeah, I could, I mean, I would love to see, um, I, I love federalism. <laughs> I think it's beautiful. I think that God mm-hmm. made the world um, and, and made humans uh, to relate to him and to one another covenantally. And that's what, that's all federalism is. It's, it's yeah. this idea of headship and having a covenant and representation. So whether that's at a national level or if it's more of a regional le- level, um, I'm not sure. Um, maybe, maybe if the church could uh, get serious about, political theology, whereas if there's anything that this last year has revealed, it's that um, the church has not equipped its people to understand what on earth does Christianity have to do with politics? You know, it's kind of this taboo thing. And then you have the state demanding that we stop worshiping God and uh, making all these various claims to its authority and everyone turning to Romans 13 and saying, oh, there it is. We have to submit to the governing authorities. Um and uh, th- this was this was a judgment on the household of God. Um, this is what you know. Paul says judgment begins with the household of God, and we we need to recover. And this is what I think a postmillennial mindset helps. Uh, we need to recover a a thought out, biblically informed um, understanding of of money, of economics, of politics. Um, and if the church is, is doing that and people, you know, recognize the covenant design, um, that is in creation, then maybe, maybe the church will be, be a leading voice in, um, in whatever is formed afterwards. Otherwise, I, you know, you, you might see this, you know, emergence of sovereign individuals and then really hyper local jurisdictions like cities, um, that, uh, that are basically just competing with one another to attract people to live there. Um, but do you so see, maybe something do you, in between those two. Do you see the federal government giving up on that that right easily? I mean, what here in the America? I mean, we we kind of see what's going on in in Australia. That no, they're not. But um, I don't see how the federal government's going to give that right up. Yeah, uh, it, it, they won't. They won't willingly. I think. Um, I don't, I don't think we can necessarily anticipate or articulate exactly how these chips fall. Um, we, I think, I think it is gradually and then suddenly. Um, but I don't think that, well, I think, I think there's an inevitability about the breakup of the, of the modern nation state and the administrative overload. Um, that's, it's, it's simply not sustainable. So I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a prophet. Of course. So do you think that Bitcoin plays a role in the millennial kingdom? Is that is that kind of the, the thought process? Well, yeah, I mean, we are in the millennium. <laughs> we are in the king. Jesus is the king of the earth and um, he is reigning. And so, yeah, I think that Bitcoin is um, is going to be this rectification in history of um, this this abhorrence, unjust inflationary fiat system that is a expression of unequal weights and measures and is 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 really theft um but it is the it is an establishment of justice um that is going to lead to um uh, some peace and stability 
where peace and stability has been lacking. And this is something that Paul wants. You know, he wants us to pray for leaders and those in authority that they would exercise their authority in such a way as to bring about peace so that the church can carry on about its business and not um, and not always be persecuted. Um, and I, I think I think that Bitcoin is um, is one of the mechanisms uh, that the Lord does that to simultaneously judge the current system. Um, but then also to provide a um, almost like almost like the uh, almost like the Roman the Roman road system. Agreed. You know, this was a technology yeah. um, that enabled the right. expansion of the gospel um, at a rapid pace that would not have been possible um, prior prior to the Roman roads. And uh, in the same way, you know, Bitcoin itself is an you know an amoral thing. Um, it doesn't necessarily have a you know um, theological foundation. Um, it, it might not have been intended, um, you know, for the glory of God, um, just like the Roman roads. But I think that the Lord is going to use that. Uh, Interesting. Definitely. I, 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 I agree. I totally agree. And I think the Lightning Network is going to be a part of that as well, just as a just as a communication uh, platform. You know, it's interesting. I think that um, looking at I, and I wrote an article about this called You Need Jesus, You Need Bitcoin. Um, just looking at where modern man's thoughts have, have led us and we see it unfolding before us in Australia. Um, it seems as if they've almost painted themselves into a corner, into a, a rational or I, I should say irrational corner where by for years they denied the presence of absolute truth. And Christians all along have been proclaiming, you know, I know absolute truth and, and um, we were shunned for it. But here comes along Bitcoin and you, we see kind of a religious awakening within the Bitcoin community. I wrote a piece on that called the Great Bitcoin Reset. And um, this is the first truth, the real the first true truth that Bitcoiners have seen. For us, it's a truth that we can relate to the fact that the Lord may have provided it for us because we know he is the ultimate truth. But I, I find that very interesting. Do, do you. Do you think that the church or do or do Christians have a responsibility to adopt Bitcoin? And so give me your thought. Yeah, let's let me ask you that question. Do you think there's a, a role or a responsibility for the church to adopt Bitcoin and for Christians to adopt Bitcoin? Yeah, what I call it a responsibility. Um, and put that in the context of, you know, if you investigate the fiat system, it's it's clear it's a lie. Yeah. So why should we promote or participate in a system that is based on lies when we can look at Bitcoin and see that fundamentally it's truth? And that could be distorted later on, but fundamentally it's it's a truth system. That's right. Yeah. Um, I mean, in that sense, absolutely. Um I would say as 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 Christians come to an understanding as they as they grow in knowledge um, around the brokenness of the current system, um, the world of lies and how how Bitcoin is positioned as really the only thing that is true um, at that at that level, then um, then to not adopt it, to not support it um, and to not advocate for it is. um it's a, it's a sin of omission, right? Mm, yeah, um, that, yeah. Because because this is this this has to do with justice, uh, which is dear to the Lord, um, and, and monetary justice in particular. You know, Jesus in, in the scriptures speaks so much 
oh, yeah. to to money and to justice. And um, you know, big, big, what, what Bitcoin has done is it's pierced through so much, um, so many of the second and third order effects, uh, places where we see injustice and brokenness. And, and, you know, we have these, you know, talking points on the left and the right and, you know, our arguments about how to address these things. And if we could just get to the root of, of, um, of the monetary system that, that props up these, these issues, um, we could, we could actually find a way out of them. Um, That's not- well said. I mean, I think that the, the, what divides us right now on right and left is right. You, we, we've gone down to third and fourth order presuppositions and right. we wouldn't be as divided if we could agree that the system is corrupt. It, it's not anybody's fault. It's, it's, it is what it is. And Bitcoin yeah. kind of shows us that truth. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, and, and then, and then when you, when you grasp that truth, like you said, you know, there is a tremendous opportunity for the church. Uh, to enter into this um, this awakening, this great awakening that is happening um, regarding monetary truth, um, and to I think it's a door. I think it's a door of opportunity, a door of ministry that that the Lord is opening uh, as more and more Christians uh, are orange pilled um, to say, you know, th- there are so many people that are waking up for the first time, like you like you say, you know, to a true truth. And, um, and there's, that's a wedge. That's right. And, and, you know, Christians can come along and they can, they can offer more truth, um, the truest truth. And, uh, you know, everything that makes Bitcoin good is good because it reflects Jesus. That's right. Um, Amen. That's right. You know, Bitcoin is immutable. So is Jesus. Uh, Bitcoin, Bitcoin is, is words, um, that that actually come into reality and shape the way that people um, people act, and, and so is Jesus. Um, Bitcoin is consistent. Jesus is consistent. You know, so it's it really is this. And, and again, when the fullness of time had come, God sent His Son, um, and and the world was ready for for Jesus's salvation at that point in history. And, and in the same way, when the fullness of time had come, the world was ready to begin adopting. Um, a, a Bitcoin standard starting 12 years ago, um, and and just in the same in the same way that the the kingdom is inevitable, I, I really do think that Bitcoin is inevitable. So it it mirrors the word of God, uh, the truth um, in so many ways. Um, not in every way, um, but I think that's what makes it good, right? Just yeah. like anything, anything that is good is good because it reflects the Creator. That's right. In the Redeemer. That's right. So. I- I so I think pre- yeah, the church yeah. the church has an opportunity here to um, to to bring attention to that. That's awesome. I actually have a chart uh, showing Jesus in Bitcoin and showing the the um, pardon me showing the the uh, parallels between the two. Um, Lance, as we as we close out here, um, I, I do want to get your thoughts on like COVID and. It's is this is COVID just kind of a a happenstance circumstance that has intersected with Bitcoin? Because where would we be right now, you and me and, and Bitcoiners, and where would be we be right now if we didn't have Bitcoin to kind of open up the the darkness of the fiat system and COVID came around? But 
we do have Bitcoin and it, it really allows allows for a framework of truth for a lot of people who don't know uh, Christianity. So what are, what are your thoughts on COVID? Yeah, you know, COVID is, is something that I'm at the same time, uh, you know, I shake my head. And I go, oh, this is this. Very frankly, this just sucks. You know, it's uh, yeah, yeah. And at the same time, it's a gift of God. Um, you know, and, and, and on the one hand, uh, it's been judgment on the church. A lot of people have been pruned from the tree. Um, a lot of churches have been pruned. Um, some have been cut off, and there it, it's a it's a fire that has revealed and refined. Um, and it's also created this, um, this opportunity, like I think you were alluding to this in, in bringing a wave of, um, of awakening to just how far down a Christless and chaotic, um, world we've been walking. Um, and, and so like, Really, I mean, Bitcoin's adoption over the last year, right? With all the printing of the money with COVID, with the censorship, um, the official narrative and, you know, fiat sponsored, uh, fiat funded research, fiat funded politicians. Um, people, it, it has caused people to wake up. Yeah. And that is, that is a gift. Um, so this is, this has been, uh, a, a, a cross and on the other side of every cross is resurrection. Amen. So, you know, I think I thank God for his purposes and I don't I don't see them. I don't claim to see them perfectly or anywhere near perfectly. Um, but I know that, you know, everything he does, he does for the good of his people um, and to increase his glory and the knowledge of his glory. Um, and it is. Yeah, it is fascinating that um, these things are coming to a head when they are. And, and because Jesus is ruling over history and he directs the affairs of man, there's no coincidences here. Um, this, these are part of his purposes and he cannot be stopped. So um, I think we're in for a very exciting decade. I think that the church um, is going to, uh, particularly as the, you know, there's more pressure and stress put upon the church um, where it has grown fat, uh, fat <laughs> um, and, and gluttonous and lazy. Um, you know, these, these, these pressure points, these are good for us. Um, we, we need to be pruned. Um, we need to be, um, trimmed down, um, so that we can, we can begin being fruitful once again. Um, so I'm really thankful for, even though I still feel like we're, we're in the beginning of the, of the awakening. Um, I, I see it happening nonetheless. Lance, one last question. I've been praying for revival since last summer. Are you seeing signs of revival? In your in your body and in your ministry, I'm I'm seeing more signs of things still being um, things still being put to death. Mm, okay. Um, and yeah, I have also been praying for renewal. You know, I I had this sequence over the last year where initially I was um, I was feeling indignant toward just culture generally. And then I said, oh, well, the, the church is the light of the world. So then I began feeling indignant for chur- the church. And then I was like, well, <laughs> uh, this is the sheep. But what about the shepherds um, who are you know, tasked with actually equipping the sheep and, and nur- nurturing them? So then I had indignation toward the shepherds. And that includes myself. Um, and 
And then I realized this, this begins with me. This begins with me repenting of what I need to repent of. Um, and I can, I can pray for revival and renewal in the culture, but that's not going to come without revival and renewal in the church, which is not going to come without revival and renewal in the past of the church. And this, again, this is federalism, right? <laughs> this yeah. is, um, God, God has made pastors, um, to be, to be the leaders of, um, of every local parish. And, um, as the pastor goes, um, so, so goes, so goes the people generally. There are exceptions. He can work outside of those, those norms. Um, but, but we need, we need pastors to repent. Um, and, and I still see, um, I still see a lot of pastors who, um, whose allegiance to Jesus is being tested. And I don't, I don't think that we've, we've reached that point of turning where there's been the pruning of the, of the unfaithful. Um, and then the remnant that remains, um, and then that the Lord just breathes upon and, and you see, you see, see, um, growth and revival yet. Well said, great, great conversation, Lance, uh, where, if people want to connect with you, what, what's the best way for people to connect with you? Yeah. Um, I'm on Twitter, Bitcoin underscore Bible. And that's pretty much the only, um, media I'm doing. I'm actually contemplating, um, and discerning right now, um, how to, um, how to, how to continue on, um, on this journey. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm discerning, maybe starting a podcast, maybe a YouTube channel. Um, and just continuing like what you're doing. And there's, there's some other great Christian Bitcoiners, um, and we can all leverage our own networks, um, to, to be able to have a platform. I do want to, um, I, I can see maybe becoming a, a sort of consultant for churches, um, beginning with yes. our, our, our diocese, um, to begin to, um, to, to instruct people, um, or just bring awareness initially to monetary injustice. You know, I, this was a, this was a, a, a tweet I did maybe a day or two ago, but I do think that monetary injustice um, and bringing attention to, to that is the vector by which the church wakes up and, and begins mass, mass adoption of Bitcoin. Yeah. Um, and there's a way of what I've, what I've experienced as I've you know, started these conversations with people is when I leave with Bitcoin, uh, immediately defenses go up yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and people yeah. think like, what, you know, is the snake point, like, what are you trying to, they're trying to sell? Um, but when I, you know, and, and I have a great excuse in the conversation because I work in the real estate industry and, you know, people are like, oh, this must be great. Um, how's business? And they're like, well, it's booming, but it's all a house of cards. Yeah. And they go, oh, really? You think so? Why? And then, and then we can get there. And I find that when I, when I do that, um, it's, it's much more effective in, in orange billing people. Um, so that I, I, I would say, um, maybe keep your eyes open um, for, for a podcast or, or some sort of uh, platform forthcoming, yeah, which would be announced yeah. on, on Twitter. Excellent. Well, I will definitely keep the audience posted as well. And I'll put uh, your contact info, your Twitter feed in, in the show notes. Um, Lance, thanks so much for your time. This is, this is really a fascinating discussion. I appreciate it. Thank you, Patrick. It's been a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Please like and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. If you would leave a review, that would be fantastic as well. Peace.